It's about the tools we use. It's about the stories we tell. It's about how we change. It's evolution, baby. All right, and we are back for another episode of Do the Evolution and continuing my ongoing series with my man, Michael Porcelli. Welcome back, Michael. Hey there. And yeah, this week we're going to talk about um, community and something that you and I have both spent a lot of personal energy and time investing in, which we'll get into some of some of that today in terms of certain modalities and technologies and why we think they're probably more important now than ever. Um, but as a general frame, you know, one thing I've been noticing that in, in, in these times of pandemic, like so much else, that it continues to bring a lot of things to the surface and make clear where things weren't working and maybe where things were working. And with the pandemic in particular, there's been this incredibly interesting polarity, which I know we're going to explore a little bit tonight, of total destruction of community and interacting in person. And, you know, Zoom stock has gone up like however many thousands of percentage points um, as remote connection has kind of, I think, sunk into our culture in a, in a way now, which has some benefits and, ha- and, and some downsides. Um, But in general, you know, I think community has been a growing topic, let's just say, or interest or burgeoning field, at least in the areas, you know, you and I tend to dabble in of spirituality and community and growth, um, which tended to sometimes focus more on traditional teachings. But like this idea of the Sangha has really been coming online huge, 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 huge in, in the, in the last couple of years and seems to be at an inflection point in my mind right now, in terms of, um, there's so many different things going on and layered in with all of that is what I would call kind of the, <laughs> the sugar of community social networking, you know, this like immediate response, but generally very low calorie, very not nutritious um, element that we're, we're consuming and feeding and creating every day that brings with it, uh, as we've already talked about so much with, uh, everything we've covered on truth in the pandemic and conspiracies that you lose a lot when it comes to sharing information online. And I think you lose a lot in terms of community and what it means to connect with, with others, um, in that space. So we have a huge amount of things to kind of dive into around this and curious what you're feeling in terms of where you want to start. So thanks, man. That's a great intro. I want to share maybe a little bit kind of how you and I became interested in this kind of personally, and then a little background maybe on how I got there in my life story. I think context matters a lot here. So you know, you and I met through the integral communities and the some of the men's work communities around authentic relating and circling. And those are 
very strong kind of social technologies for creating deeper connection and mm-hmm. community. Communities have sprung up all over the world around these practices. And um, it's definitely meeting a need that is out there. And, you know, I first got into it because I was just, you know, needing to, wanting to develop in a certain way, like the emotional, relational, social intelligence skills when I found it at first. And then, you know, many years later, I became a leader in the community. And um, in a way, I got a lot of that deeper social need met. Uh, yeah. Now, if I trace my development, I mean, you use the word Sangha, like in my background, we called it fellowship, right? This is like church. And I grew up not in a kind of like very formal or stodgy kind of, I don't know, maybe more ritualized form of church, but a more kind of rambunctious style of Pentecostal church where people were just really all up in each other's business about a lot of things. And, um, in fact, like part of me, part of my religious deprogramming phase was to kind of try to assert some individualism or individual independence, freedom of thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the ways that the cultural norms around like Christian fellowship kind of were always sort of meddling up in each other's psyches was something I pushed away from. But looking back, I realized, you know, that hunger or that need for it was still there. And, um, you know, I had different versions of it along the way. I mean, I had friend groups that I bonded to uh, really closely, like my a certain chunk of my friend group who met through campus Christian fellowships uh, in my undergrad. We actually kind of like got religiously programmed together, but we sort of clung to each other as like a little mini community. Totally. And, uh, and then when I found integral and circling and authentic relating and these kinds of, you, I don't know you want to call these, like it's, it's not quite at the level of like uh, these new religious movements, these kind of like post sixties intentional communities, but it's sort of on that towards that spectrum. It's almost like a, a cultural fad, you might say, that kind of emerged in the late 20th century in the context we live in, you know, like modern, postmodern, Western, affluent civilization. Because, and a lot of people in those communities, I don't know about you, like left some version of religion when they were younger and then are sort of trying to kind of fill that thing back up somehow, somewhere. Like whatever it is, we're doing a meditation group or a yoga community or we're doing circling together. These kinds of things, I sort of see this kind of like the underlying human need is never went away, right? Mm-hmm. Like we don't want to do it here, we don't, but we're not sure where and how. And then we, we all find each other there. And then it's kind of like, ooh, cool. We're getting that need met again. So that I think is a bit of the context in terms of where I'm coming from and uh, some of how we met actually. And I'm kind of curious. Uh, you know, before we sort of get into talking about culture today or the future, like what's your little story, personal background with it all? Totally. Yeah. What led me um, to community was I, I was, I was raised Lutheran, um, but not particularly heavily. So, you know, we went to church, but there wasn't like a huge community 
aspect to it for me in particular. Um, but you know, my family was great in a lot of ways, but not particularly good at the art of connection when it came to like emotional resonance and kind of being with each other. It was always outward focused on activities or what are we doing or sitting in the same room, watching TV together, which I think is an experience many, many, um, people and families here in the U S have in terms of kind of living in the same space, but not necessarily actually connecting. And so that left a pretty deep hunger, you know, for me. And I initially found that, you know, through friends, uh, through friends that were nerds and super into video games or into the similar bands with me. And there was like that resonance, right. Finding kind of like my little, my little group, my in group, which was really, really nice. And then, um, you know, for me, I think one of the big shifts I had was I was, I went to school up in Santa Cruz and graduated and was living there, not really sure what to do next with my life in got a job through a friend at this amazing group home um, where I was working with kids who had uh, various ranges of autism, just intense, wild job, learned so much in that two years alone, which is a whole thing to go into. But it was there, interestingly enough, that um, Ken Wilbur had launched kind of a proto podcast called Integral Naked back in the early 2000s, which is basically just him podcasting. I mean, they didn't have the word then, but he would just talk to people. And I had an overnight shift once a week at the group home where I, I was kind of the the overnight guy while the kids were sleeping and help them get up and get ready for school and all that. So I'd clean the house and I would put on my little MP3 player, the Integral Naked episode, and listen to Ken talking to all these different people. And he just kept talking about, and all the young kids are moving out to Boulder and you know they're having integral raves and they're connecting and they're they're practicing together. And I immediately just had this like, wow, I yearn for that. Like there's, there's something I really want in that. I had, I had a pretty good friends group in Santa Cruz, but there was like a little something missing in it. And also knew that I wanted to do some, you know, there were pieces of my healing that I didn't know how to access yet. Like I knew things weren't quite working for me and how I was showing up in the world. And I, I had a sense if I went there into that community, I would get some clues and get to move towards it. So that guided me there, which was, you know, instant community. I like walked into a room and met some, you know, some people we know very well these days, Casey Capshaw and Keith and who, um, and Robert and many other people who were like instant friends in that they had, we had similar values and we had similar in interests behind that. And we were doing this thing called integral, right? This theory of Ken's that we've talked about on here before, which is a pretty cognitive top heavy thing. And we were running seminars and trying to get the work out. And it was kind of one of those frustrating things of like, oh my God, hey, everybody, we think we have something for you. You should know about it. Read this book. And people are like, no, I'm not reading a 10,000 page book. Like, go away. Um, and then I ended up... Um, through that, you know, forming what was the first version of the Integral Center, what back when it was Boulder Integral, me and some of the people that left Ken's Institute started a community center because we were we had this realization like one of the things you hear about people in the integral world would say over and over is they'd come to a seminar or they'd meet other people and it's like, oh my God, it's just so nice to find my people and it feels like I'm home. Just like when you like meet with that vibration, so to speak, or that um, cognitive 
understanding you have with each other. And there wasn't really a community, right? It was like a dingy office that had seminars a couple times a year. And people would literally show up in Boulder trying to find Ken's house, so desperate to find people to talk to about this work that it kind of inspired us to start like, well, what if there was a place for them to show up at? And then even there, you know, one thing I noticed having kind of run tech and behind the scenes on so many of the um, seminars we did was like, you know, we'd get feedback from everyone. What did you love? What could you have used more of at the end? It's just like number one thing every time that people, I, I swear to God, wrote, were just like, I really loved getting to know people in between the breaks or in between the sessions, like going out to lunch with people and just hanging out and talking and like before and after. That was always their favorite part was just connecting, literally just meeting other people and connecting. And so it was kind of as I was, you know, ending my time in, in Boulder to some extent is when circling in all the authentic relating world really kind of hit that a lot of the guys had gone out to the West Coast and brought it back. And it was just in an immediate like rush for me of like, this feels like a missing piece. Um, a, for me in terms of my nourishment and, you know, we started a men's group, we had our authentic relating groups going and I was like, this feels so key. And one of the reasons I'm still so passionate about that work is what I love about something like circling is you don't have to have any frame coming in to have an experience of connectivity and a different way of being. Yep. Right. So you don't have to read a book first. You don't have to understand a concept, but someone can walk in the room and have an immediate experience in their body actually of this feels different. This is a, this is different. And time and time again, I saw it in myself and those that I, you know, led lead in circles and groups of like coming in a little bit kind of closed, maybe a little tired, anxious, leaving open and energized, like, mm -hmm. and just noticing how powerful a tonic connection itself um, really is. And then for me, I moved out here to LA for uh, my film career. And, you know, it was like total contrast. Boulder, very small town. Santa Cruz, where I lived, very small towns um, in the sense that community kind of almost happens automatically there. There's, a, there's like one drag, you walk down that strip, you're going to bump into people you know, you can get to anyone's house in like 10 minutes. Like it's very easy to feel in community there, at least was for me versus LA where it's like a thousand different towns all spread out. No community really happens automatically in my experience here. It's so much more intention based. So when I got here, I quickly reached out to some of the, the founders of authentic relating like, Hey, do you know anyone and got connected to some people and not only got involved, but started leading that stuff and found that like, as long as I was doing that two or three times a month, like my connection bucket stayed pretty full. Yeah. And then it, it was much easier for me to stay engaged in the world. So, and you know, this works only deepened in my life since then in terms of leading men's groups, which are really about community and um, leading co-ed authentic relating events. So I love this stuff. I, I you know, I think about so much of my frame moving through the world and even seeing a lot of the challenges in the world for me are around connection in mm -hmm. community and this like loss of something. I, I feel like we could argue we've particularly had here in the West in the, in the modern West of um, something that is just so fundamental 
like at a nervous system level for us as human beings that when we haven't had it for a while and then we get it, it's like literally finding water in the desert. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit more broadly now, like about how do we get here maybe in the West? Um, Mm -hmm. But this kind of touches on like my favorite topic area, which is social technology. And to me, it actually kind of bridges all the way across, you know, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, Snapchat, those are social technologies, and circling and authentic relating and other group work, that those are also social technologies. Uh, holacracy, another one of my favorite things, that's another social technology. These things are on a spectrum, and they have different purposes and functions. Um, and I think... Uh, there's a way of seeing our current moment uh, in a broader context of of maybe longer term historical trend lines, which which I think kind of they activate some degree of concern. You know, some people mm-hmm. talk about uh, the loneliness epidemic. Now, I, I'm not sure how you would kind of statistically justify a, an epidemic of this type, but there does seem to be something that that's pointing at where certain kind of starvation for a certain quality of connection that even in the midst of like a huge amount of interaction, you might say this very, very frequent, but often very shallow, like um, in social media online, uh, this other part has sort of gone down and there's even been some studies. um, I think uh, about like long-term well-being, like they've they've done some like longevity studies. Uh, I, I was a TED talk, and I'm forgetting her first name, but um, I think it was Steven Pinker's sister. I think did, did or maybe this is I don't know. Really, he was he's related. To him. So she did this whole TED talk where she talks about this like little Italian town with these centenarians, like a lot of older people, and she said like what's interesting is is very very like. Is not, Boulder has nothing on this, right? It's a little village, right? It's like very small, and you sort of get the sensation, like walking down the streets, like people are peeking out at you from behind the curtains. Totally, everyone's super up into each other's business, you know. And you know, she does these slides, like here's a household, and here's like, you know, great grandpa. Right? <laughs> There's like three generations of people, like in All the there. house, right? And it's like, wait a minute. There's some. There's even some studies that like it's uh, a good connection or lack of good connection is even more harmful than smoking in terms of like physical longevity. I've heard this one. Totally. Yeah. That's one I, I've, I've come across a lot and actually in my men's work that, um, and I use is like uh, sustained loneliness can be as dangerous as heart disease, obesity, smoking, like it actually can have a severe impact on the nervous system, which, um, you know, ties into all kinds of things about how we handle the elderly in our culture and just kind of shuffle them away to other, you know, other spaces. And particularly, I think for a lot, a lot of men that I work with, this is a very real thing of, you know, in high school, college, you have sports, there's just ways to connect with people. And then you get out into the world and there's not a lot of arenas to make new relationships or find ways to create and thrive them unless you just happen to have a really good workplace. So I work with a lot of men who are like, yeah, I don't really have, you know, I have some people I talk to occasionally. Um, and it's something that I see very much impact relationships as well, because so many men don't have 
other um, networks to support themselves that it, their relationship becomes the only place, which creates a lot of pressure on a relationship emotionally. The, relationship, the partner. Yes. Yeah. The amount of time you spend together, it, it puts a lot on that. So it's one of the reasons every guy I work with, I'm like, you got to get into a men's group. Got to get into, You're going to have a better relationship if you're in a men's group. Um, and just, you know, part of, part of what's my purpose right now in, in terms of connecting men in that way, because I, I do think it's an epidemic. You know, one of the things that I always gets men when I'm talking on the phone is like this lone wolf thing, this idea, I'll just get, figure it out. I'm going to get through life alone. And it causes so much stress on the nervous system that when men, at least in my experience, start to realize they don't have to live that way. It's just like this massive, like, oh my fucking God, yep. I can talk to people. I don't have to do this alone. Yep. So this, I mean, if we go way back historically, I mean, the the hunter-gatherer tribes or to even compare us, you know, on the on the spectrum of other animal species, there's a whole field of biology that is about animal sociality and like different degrees of it. You know, I think there's, I don't know, I sort, I sort of think of like fish and snakes, <laughs> very sort of solo or maybe like very small, right? But then there's yeah. kind of, these groupishness and the primates have a lot of it. You sometimes we think of like wolf packs themselves have some amount of, totally. you know, extreme ones like ants and termites and bees, like they have these hives, right? Like, well, humans in some ways are almost best compared to like the ants and the bees. We, we've exceeded like our urban centers have kind of exceeded in a way, you know, they're, those are like giant, whatever beehives of activity. Like we've, Colonies. Used, yeah. As like, analogies so the need for it and we can you could talk about the physiological aspect of it you could talk about the evolutionary aspect the biological aspect like why we are so let's call it eusocial in a way pro-social as a species like that kind of predates even the emergence of religion and then we kind of had what i think of as you know a lot many hundreds, perhaps thousands of years of something roughly like traditionalist type culture, mm -hmm. which, you know, is this agglomeration of like a, a sense of a culture, a sense of group identity, tribe identity, or ethnic or racial identity, uh, and a religion, and a nation, or a, a, some kind of a state or proto-state yeah. that all kind of go together they create this kind of sense of like real bonding. And that has been this up until really the 20th century, the predominant way. And now in the 20th century, we've seen this in the 21st century. Now, like we're in the middle of like one of the biggest demographic changes from people living in rural places to living in urban places, you know, places in the West, like yeah. New York city and London, like we're kind of ahead of the curve globally. But now you, you look at these giant, mega cities like um like Wuhan even right like is this move towards this kind of like giant uh kind of almost anonymous big city and I don't want to totally down on cities I'm I'm hugely pro city for a lot of reasons uh and I love being in them and I've lived in mm -hmm. them but I I do think you can kind of trace uh, what some people call like alienation or you can even totally. these kind of trends in urban planning like especially if you look at po post-war urban planning or the 
the building of the interstate highway system in the U.S. and kind of the zoning, you sort of zoned things apart from each other, the residential zones and the working zones. Everyone sort of had cars. I mean, you L.A. is like the prototype city. Totally. Of that. Uh, Southern California, it's just everywhere. And now, you know, many decades later, we're kind of looking at like traffic jams, like in, infinite traffic jams is kind of like, this is also not good. Right. But there was reasons for it. You know, you had this maybe even this idea of like, you know, we don't want huge town square gathering places because, you know, that's how we ended up with all these World War Two like you know, frenzies, you know, these huge squares totally. of, you know, like, okay, let's just spread people out. Or um, uh, famously is Moses, Ir- Irwin Moses, whatever his name was, the guy the kind <laughs> of infamous in New York City for kind of causing, at least in part, causing the urban decay by kind of this kind of brutalist cement architecture, you know, like multi-purpose stadiums, like everyone sort of spreads out and then the urban core kind of decayed yeah right like this this phenomenon goes along with that kind of idyllic mid-century nuclear family right we have our our own house and owning a home is like the american dream and we have a yard and we have the fence and i'm not saying that's a bad thing but like the separate even people migrating to get jobs like that is from even my parents, right? Like, you know, my mom's family is back in Mexico. My dad's family is way on the East Coast in New Jersey. But this idea of like, you know, couples maybe meeting each other in a big city, yeah. then, you know, they decide where they're going to go live together, which is often influenced by a career choice of one or the both of them. And then they just kind of go off and then plop, you just sort of plopped in some town really far away from your family of origin, but that's just normal, you know? And yeah, that's normal for us, (laughs) not normal for the history uh, of the world in a lot of sense, which I think is what you're pointing to the, the, yeah, there, there was so much there. The thing I kind of want to hone in on is two different things. You said, I I think we kind of had a, a convergence of, two factors that I think have particularly led up to what I would argue is like a crisis of community here in the U S where I live. So that's what I know the most about, right. Is we had the shifting interiors, right. So the, the kind of bottoming out of that more traditional culture of, you know, people who are even being religious and having local institutions and meeting, you know, you would often marry someone from your church or from your town. Like there was this kind of, certain level of community built in to these uh, social and cultural and religious institutions that kind of started to evaporate uh, in, in a lot of ways. And those numbers are only accelerating. Then at the same time, you have the changes in the exterior, the externals, right? Which totally, uh, I mean, I've always been obsessed with the privatization, right? This is like America's thing, my space, my liberty, my, my land, um, which is just so driven by the concept of the car, right? Which is, okay, so everyone can have their own space when we spread out. And then the car itself, you know, I remember in in, in university, one of the terms that always stuck with me was we're a culture of mobile privatization. So we, we found a way to take our privacy with us. Yeah. So even going to and fro, we don't have to interact with anyone, right? Like everybody's in their own space and, and we're separate. And then 
the the idea of the you know white picket fence your your own space that has a yard which has a buffer from other people that you your little nuclear family then lives in and your parents live somewhere else like just accelerates all that and accentuates that that like leave me alone leave me alone <laughs> you know which i think is a a certain uniquely american dna like just leave me alone i want my own space so i think we had both of those things kind of happening at the same time where the car allowed um, cities and geography to be shaped at a non-human scale, right? Because that's one of the things you can always notice going to an old old city somewhere around the world that formed before the car. Streets are tiny. Like, yep. They're literally tiny and everything's kind of walkable because it had to be. Because other than horses, right, you actually had to be able to get there by foot. Um, so there's it's like a different scale of being that's way more human-centric. And, you know even though our cities aren't designed that way, it's one of those funny things that people so yearn for it in my experience, right? Part of why people left somewhere like Boulder is they took three blocks and removed cars, three blocks. And that creates enough of something that people really enjoy being there. Or even to a lesser extent, the promenade here in, in, um, Los Angeles down in Santa Monica in other areas that we're seeing start to like, this idea of, oh, it's actually really nice when there's not cars and it's just human bodies. Like it feels good um, to, to kind of zoom back into that scale. So I think we had both of those things happening. And then, yeah, that this just insane invention of the nuclear family that like, okay, mom and dad are going to raise the kid and we're going to live in our own, uh, own unit. And that's it, which is just so different from how every other human being <laughs> up until that point had lived that it's no wonder that, you know, I, I, I just think there's been a lot of, uh, strife and struggle and depression and different things we're seeing really emerge, uh, in our culture right now. Yep. Totally. And to, to bring in another, another piece here, you kind of touched on what I think is like the, what are you going to call it? The, the, the privatization or the commercialization or the commodification of everything, even the car itself becomes like a, an expression of your personality, which is just always struck mm -hmm. weird. But growing up in Southern California, that's a very predominant thing. It's a symbol of freedom and so forth, or at least it was when we were in high school, actually that's changing these days, which is, which is interesting. But there's another side of it too. If you kind of take a, like a more, if I were to kind of critique the lefty approach, like, uh, it, you know, there was, there was a time I would say like pre pre great depression, right? Pre uh, new deal that uh, the social welfare was really seen as being provided by the local community networks of churches or the relationship between the local church and what were called friendly societies. Mm -hmm. You still see these, you know, entering into a small town, Elks club, rotary club, these kinds of things on, on the signage. And it's like, well, those local chapters i mean what were they well they were in a way this kind of decentralized ish network infrastructure for the social welfare yeah but you were you know it was kind of a thing where like you know it was like the local local people looking out for each other maybe the local wealthy you know you know chipping in to like the local pot you know the local fund right and then the ways that it would get kind of administered there was some amount of like oversight, right? This is our relationship. Even, even growing up in church, you know, it's like the troubled youth and it's like, well, you know, 
you can come over here, you know, you can sleep in this bed and we'll feed you dinner so long as you agree to like go to work with so-and-so who's going to come pick you up every mm -hmm. morning and you will set you back up and you can just stay here as long as you need. So long as you keep these rules, right? Like, so this kind of a charity with strings attached that was sort of enmeshed in a kind of sense of local community was a way for the community to provide, you know, for all of its pluses and minuses. You could say like the, when the state sort of just comes in and starts to like acquire more of a provider of the social welfare at a kind of national scale, where it's kind of a bureaucracy, you're a number, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, all these sorts of things sort of undermine the need for the local community to do it for itself, right? It's, it sort of becomes two competing paradigms, which is, I think, is another sign of this kind of latter half of the 20th century and early into the 21st century, like well-intentioned social programs. You, you can actually sort of see some people analyze um, society in these three broad categories, the state, the market, and civil society. And civil society is all the stuff that's not an exchange with the state authority or a commercialized market exchange. It's the kind of, mm. say it's the gift economy, it's charity, it's, you know, having a big giant picnic and, you know, all the church, all the, those sorts of things. Yeah. Both the state and the market have kind of eroded the role of civil society over the long term. And I think that's also part of what is having people feel the loneliness epidemic or the alienation of late capitalism, if you want to call it that, or, or the late 20th century, like we're in a transition state where I don't think where we're at is all that great. I think there's like a, I think there's, there's a reason why people, you know, cults are like a thing now, right? We're on these podcasts, like cult deprogramming. Look at this cult. Look at that cult. Look at this other one. It's like, but why are people like flocking to them? You know, mm -hmm from like in the late 60s up until now, like in much more larger numbers than totally. I think. I actually don't know that statistic there, but it seems like it at least, or at least in the circles. I'm like, why is that happening? It's like people are they're reaching for a thing that's sort of, they didn't, they, they weren't even aware that it was taken away. It just sort of what is sort of like this missing piece, right? And these kind of intentional communities and cults or whatever you want to call them, spiritual groups, circling authentic relating communities come in in some way to fill that up because there's a vacuum because the whole way the the political economy has evolved in the exterior dimensions like has kind of eroded or supplanted in a way the the that role like this the need for it or the yeah some it, it doesn't get rid of the human need for it but sort of it systemically it's sort of supplants that those social infrastructure you know what i'm saying yeah no totally and it, 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 there's an interesting bridge here that i'm noticing um because that's like the outside part and then there's an inside part too though about the the um the like community welfare piece that i think is worth speaking towards of how you know people would take care of each other in these kind of more tribal or traditional um, centers of gravity which is that um they work really well and are incredibly stable and functioning as long as you're in yes the crowd right is you're in the group if you're believing what the group believes and you 
depending on the exact group, look look like or believe or behave in a way the group, they will take care of you. But if you're outside of that circle, it's actually can be fairly brutal in, in a lot of yeah. ways, particularly in the more tribal and even somewhat right in those small towns, right? That feeling of everybody looking at you, if you step out of line for what's considered normal, it can be pretty brutal, right? Like, or step out of line of your church, you can get excommunicated and then it's, there's like nothing for you, you know, in some sense. Um, so you, you know, in, when the center of gravity is there, there's actually a very strong incentive to not stray outside the norms, right? To kind of not have beliefs outside the normal structure, not challenge things too much, um, adhere to the morals and values of that group, which again, as long as you're in that, it's incredibly stable and it's awesome and it's fantastic. But then if you find out you're a little different, it can be pretty challenging, right? If you find out you're the only person, um, maybe who is a different, uh, sexual preference in, in, in that community, right? Or back in the day in particular, like that was something you had to hide. You couldn't let anybody know, couldn't let anybody know. Cause if you got right. kicked out of that group, um, your, your survival could be put at stake. Now, what's interesting is right in that cluster, um, what, what I guess you could, I could argue is like hiding difference <laughs> is, yeah. is part of what allows you to stay safe in that, in that thing. So you, there's certain things you don't want to get out. Um, and that's been going on for a very, very long time at, you know, at the local township level, in, in the religious community level. And then, you know, in, in the last decades, we have the birth of the internet, which suddenly provides this other interesting thing where it's like, oh my God, all the people that had all these weird, unique differences can start linking up and building a community of, oh my God, I thought I was the only one that was obsessed with gun smoke, you know, or, or whatever <laughs> random thing that, yep. you know, you just have a fetish for or something, or are really passionate about this particular time in history or this crazy, weird, you know, belief structure or something like that, that the internet starts giving away for those groups to kind of start linking up and creating like a, a meta level of connection. That's not really based on geography so much or how you look or, you know, you're in and out group that was part of what was so exciting about the early internet and like so positive, even though, you know, there were some things like those, it, I know there was stuff going on back then, but like early CompuServe and prodigy forums, like they weren't places of great trolling. They were like people that were incredibly excited to be connecting with other human beings they had never met before mm -hmm. and sharing certain interests or values or chat rooms, or, you know, it was like a, I speak of it wistfully because there was like a certain innocence to that. And we we're like, oh my God, this is going to change the world, right? Like when everybody gets connected, how positive it's going to be without realizing <laughs> all the shadow that we're now seeing uh, comes with that. But I, I think that's a really interesting point that, that I just wanted to point out that for all the benefits that like um, taking care of each other energy had, it really only worked if you fit the bill for whatever that culture or groove or belief system was. And I think part of you know the evolution to the state to some extent is how do we take care of people that don't believe what we believe, don't look like what we look like, um, for better or worse. It doesn't mean they executed that you know functionally, but a desire for well, what if everybody got got to you know have certain life liberties and the pursuit of happiness, you know, kind of that uh, that that American thing. Um, 
but in some sense we yeah it's just such a this moment man. <laughs> just think, just thinking about twitter i'm just like well let's talk a little bit about you brought in the the internet and i think this is a, this is kind of like has to be addressed right like you have a little wistfulness about the early internet i i do too but i also you know i was my early internet experiences were more kind of like the raw usenet uh unix culture which was for the most part, very respectful and pretty awesome. You might say Usenet was the sort of original social networking out there. You could put a post, you people said back to you. But even then, there was the idea of being like a good, I think I call it like, be a good netizen, right? Like, what does it mean to be polite and to not troll? And even, even ideas like don't feed the trolls was sort of like a maxim back then. Or this idea of like the flame wars and like, oh, get out of the flame wars because they're easy to get into. Um, part of it, what you're saying is this kind of idea I, idyllic is yeah. all right. places in my local community where I don't feel like I fit in. I can now connect and see like, Oh, there's a whole bunch of weirdos like me who don't fit in in the same way. And now we're connecting because we're, you know, on some alt dot something, you know, yep. Usenet group. That's cool. Which I agree with. Uh, but then there's another piece here, which I, I kind of want to bring in like shadow and collective shadow. Like you're talking about, a place where it would feel safe, but part of the safety back then was pseudonyms, right? You could yeah. make an account. It wasn't your, your real name. Nobody knew your actual gender. Everything was text. There was no photos. And if, you know, if you kind of like, if your handle got a bad reputation, just make another handle, right? You could just like, yeah, I right, just, you know, I have multiple ones, you know, and there was a, there's an interesting, this, this I think is somewhat novel because, I think, you know, up till then, if if we kind of, this is a little bit of a tangent here, like in, in parallel with these big demographic shifts of the 20th century was the rise of psychotherapy, right? As a kind of taking over some of the role that maybe traditional society took care of in, in terms of the priest, mm -hmm. local minister and that sort of thing, which is good, right? Like th that's, you know, you could think of confession as like, this is where you say the shit that you're not supposed to say, you know, in the yeah. of the church, but you say it to the priest, right? You're sort of revealing some part of yourself that maybe doesn't fit. And, you know, I bet you people were talking about their, you know, non-conforming gender or sexual preferences to the priest as though it was sort of a sin. Like being able to reveal it was sort of a way to hey, lift some of that, handle it somehow. Mm -hmm. Totally. But when you have this, anonymous part of the internet. So Twitter still made the non blue check part of Twitter is still kind of this way. Facebook mm -hmm. tried to get rid of it with real ID, but Friendster, the early one was like more like Twitter or the early Usenet where there was no real ID. Um, but that serves as a kind of therapeutic outlet. Like it actually did took over. And you might say some of the same function maybe in a traditional society was done with like your confessional to your priest, or maybe in the modern society, most of the 20th century, maybe if you were a secular urban dweller, you did it with your analyst, right? Like now here, Gen X and forward, what do you do? You just make up a handle and you just like, let that part of you just blast. Right. And it doesn't, and you and I, I mean, this is, not news. It shouldn't be news to any of our listeners either, which is like, what do you see when people can like say anonymous shit on the internet 
they get nasty. Now, does that totally. mean that they are nasty? No, but it does mean that like we, the weirdly, the incentive of that is that we can, it's, it's a little bit like a Halloween party, right? It's like we, we put on masks and then somehow that liberates some part of us that normally mm-hmm. underneath. Well, this is just kind of like the, the pseudonym part of the internet is just like a rolling masquerade party, right? Just like, ah, like, yeah. which is cool because you can find people, maybe try out things, try out a persona, let it go, or find this part of you that's sort of oppressed by your local group or your family system and like find an outlet for it. And then maybe go move away to like find people more like you, which is what people, I mean, living in San Francisco, that is what happens, right? People migrate there for very specific reasons. You know, world gay headquarters is what it was like back in the nineties. Right. Like, so anyway, like, um, I think there's some, effect that that has that serves as both like an outlet and if it's done well healthy processing or integration of what we might call shadow or things that are less acceptable in real life but that i think we're in a weird period where even that is actually it's breaking down to even provide that especially when people get reputationally destroyed for a tweet they did like 10 years ago this kind of like ID that sort of now gloms on, like it's almost like the anonymous part of the internet is sort of fading into memory, you know, like, and there's still not a thing, you know, it's, 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 we're in a hard place. I'm just trying to add another ingredient to like what makes this breakdown of what do you, maybe it's the, I have a term I've thought about it toying with is like socio emotional well being, socio emotional health and well being. Like if there's like, Different parts of us as, oh, diet, yeah, exercise. Well, there's this other one. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's a, just zoning it into that, like, I think that's also one of the important things that distinguishes what I would call online connection from in-person connection, right? In my experience, and maybe there's signs backing this up, maybe there's not. Um, I imagine there is. But, you know, in the work I do, the deep relational work I do, the men's work I do, the co-ed work I do, the uh, Mm -hmm. intimacy work I do, part of the power of being relational and facing someone, right? And this is where the vagal nerve comes in and they're finding all kinds of data of when you make eye contact and look at someone's face, something happens, right? Your your body is able to relax and, Mm -hmm. and, and downshift into a more kind of parasympathetic place where the actual connection becomes a mechanism for grounding and dealing with stress and integrating and just feeling more here, feeling more okay. So being in person, I can look someone in the eye and just breathing with them, you know, can totally change my state of being and my sense of well-being in my experience. You know, I can get triggered by people in person too, but in general, there's something really available to physically being with others totally. um, in that way that I think the inverse happens, right? When I look at my phone, <laughs> I don't get any of that feedback. And in fact, it tends to, for me, tighten up my nervous system. And, you know, like we all know these days, feel some kind of outrage of some sort. Like, ah, oh, they're fucking wrong. Ah, oh, I fucking hate the world. Ah, oh, it's all ending. Ah, oh, goddamn. Um, and it actually stresses me out. But because there, I think there's this 
pseudo confusion right now of it's called social networking, right? The social web. Oh, me going to check Facebook is, is a way for me to get connected when it's actually doing the opposite for my nervous system, right? Mm-hmm. I, I know there's studies because we talk about this a lot in the dating stuff I do with men of like how harmful asynchronous communication can be for our nervous system, right? When you send the text mm-hmm. and then suspense, it could be days till yep. it comes back. And that actually has some an impact on our nervous system, right? Like a wired, like, oh, fuck, did I mess that up? Are they mad at me? What's going on? I did, 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 did. Which in person, you would immediately be getting some kind of feedback, right? Physically, through their face, through their voice, through their body, through their energy, through their emotion, which you know may not go the way you want, but your body would be getting the loop closed. Um, but so much of social networking, I, I think, is leaving us in this kind of like open, stressed state where we're not getting regulated from it. We're actually getting deregulated from it, but there, but we turn to it to get regulation. It's this weird kind of awful, I think, loop that, that I know I've been stuck in before. And I see so many people getting stuck in. And then, you know, one thing I'd be curious to get your feedback on that I've been thinking of a lot about these last months, um, having connected with different people that, um, you know, might have less connection in their physical life than they actually want. There's, there's an, there's an interesting perverse incentive because of the way the algorithms are generated where, um, con generating conflict or being contrarian is a way to get connection in the social networking space. Right? So if all my friends are posting something, but I post the opposite, which is going to cause them to like, and then I'm engaging with them. And I'm like, no, you're da, da, da. And I'm da, da, da. That's actually a type of connection. It's, it's to my mind, it's like a very unhealthy version of it. Like it's not a very fulfilling nutrient, but if that's all you've got, there's actually becomes a massive incentive to kind of troll or cause conflict or um, be contrarian online because it will bring a type of connection. It will get feedback to you. It's just not the healthy regulating kind in my mind. Yeah. This is, you brought in so many things. Uh, you know, I agree with you just basically about the perverse incentive to be controversial because it brings attention and, you know, attention is at least some amount of validation that you exist or it does feed a social need, even if it is at a real basic level. You know, and um, some people's personalities are predisposed in that way. Like I- iconoclasts or rebels tend to be the sort of way. Like innovators actually are very much like totally. Uh, and so it feeds those types of personalities even more. Um, to kind of go back to some of the things you were saying, like I, I want to just like a good integral analysis would is like there's good and bad to both sides. We could go like anonymous internet, good part outlet for, for shadow. Right. Kind of like DIY shadow work, potentially, you know, not the best version of it, but you can can try some things out. Okay, but like if you go from like anonymous to real ID, you sort of there's a trade off there. If you go from like, okay, but it's text and not pictures. Well, there's sort of a loss of fidelity with just text. You go pictures, not video. There's like a, a, a differential there. And then if you go from like live to a synchronous, there's a loss of fidelity there. And even if you're live, like we are, I can see you here on the video as we talk and listen to each other. There's still something that we're missing. Like even in these Zoom rooms, right? Like uh, 
you know, just to throw in a few ideas that I've, I've considered like, well, we, our bodies emit little molecules, right? And those molecules are attached to our emotional system somehow. And our noses pick up those molecules. So we can actually get a, like some emotional contagion or transmission when we're in person that we can't get on the screen, right? That's one. I know they're, they've trained um, certain algorithms to like be able to take somebody's pulse just by looking at their video of them because it can it can actually detect the, the the I think it's the carotid that's in your neck and like I sort of wonder if like there's some like subconscious processes in our brains that are like tr- like I kind of know basically your heart rate roughly and your breathing rate roughly. It might be harder for me to see through a screen. Another one is like the whites of our eyes. If you compare even us to social primates, they like inside their eyelids is mostly black and you can't really tell where they're looking. But when we're in social groups in physical configuration, like whether we're conscious of it or not, we are tracking where people's gazes are going. So just the fact that people's gazes move in response to whatever's happening is transmitting social information into all of our minds about what's happening, especially like power dynamics are pinged quite well. Like somebody does a thing, everyone looks to the powerful person in the room and you can, and we can kind of update social hierarchy data in our minds just by that, which even on screens goes away when we're in a Zoom room because we're not all configured in the same, you know, like virtual space. Like we, we sort of flattens, it sort of takes a three-dimensionality of the relative position out of the equation, right? So there's all this kind of subtraction of things. There's like a trade-off there, but then there's also kind of benefits to it as well. Like you could say there's a benefit to async versus sync. You know, it's sort of like Mm -hmm. writing a letter to a pen pal back in the day, right? Oh, you just take a little extra time and put a little... Cohere your thoughts. Yeah, yeah, right? And you could be like, well, if I feel sort of like maybe traumatized, a little unsafe. Like there's some people who have actually been able to get into circling better through the online platforms simply because going to like a circling authentic relating event live with people was too emotionally overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So a baby step, right? To to do the online version to kind of get you there. So there's like a, there's a, a plus and a minus to all of these. But in the end, I mean, this is, I think why, People doing high stakes deal making like flying planes to be in the same room with each other before they sign the pen on the thing. And right now people are kind of, do we really need to do that? Or can we do this like virtually? And there's like a push for like how much like during COVID, how much of this stuff can we do on a virtual replacement? Which I think is good in a way because there's a whole lot of unnecessary commuting and car. I mean, it's stupid if you get out of your, you know, suburban house into your car and then you drive to your office and then you go to your cubicle and then you sit there more or less all day long without interacting with anybody in person just through your screen yeah. and then you get back in your car and go home like well that was just a waste of time like you're not totally you're not utilizing the like live in person face to face in the flesh benefit which is the that really literally is the highest bandwidth nervous system entrainment type of connection and communication that is possible that is the need for that. I don't believe will ever entirely go away. 
Um, but it is also true. Some people just can't. Some people are immobilized. I've talked to people who like actually do therapeutic interventions for people who are like paraplegic or quadriplegic through VR. So they mm -hmm. like cyber counselors, you know, they teleport into a kind of a shared VR space with people who basically just can't interact with yeah. me in person. So there's like a, a very, it's a kind of cool. Like there's, we have that, but there's also this substitution where for many people we go like, this is just as good and it's not. And it's actually kind of corrosive to that need, that nutrient need that we have is like, no, I need, we need, I need that to be in person with you and to, to feel like to cuddle or to touch, right? Like touch deprivation is a real thing. Oh, so much hormones, our well-being, like so important for our nervous systems and how we regulate and how we breathe, right? Just even the way we breathe in community, you know, when one person deepens and everybody takes a breath in they're like our, our, we're wired for that. You know, this is one of the th reasons I argue that even though they're probably going to become more of a, a rare specialty, there'll always be things like movie theaters because there's actually something happening in our nervous systems in addition to what we're actually seeing on the screen, right? When there's a big moment and you can feel the whole room pauses. Yep. And then, right. There's like the, the, the hero comes back or, or something. Um, there, there's like something else that's feeding us about having that group experience. And they've done some, you know, studies about like people's heart rate variability even syncs up in, in theatrical experiences, right? Like there is, there's something about us perceiving that narrative together that, that in these in life experiences that are so valuable. I think what we're about to see, I would argue that Corona is maybe accelerating is those experiences are going to become a premium. Mm -hmm. So, so like, you know, I always love I don't remember where I first got the concept, but, you know, just the distinguishing between space and place, everything used to have to happen in physical place and zoom and the internet is created this new virtual space where we can meet, but it's different, right? We're meeting in space. You and I are not meeting in place and it's possible one day they'll have some kind of technologies that can bring in some more of this subtle you know, subtle energy stuff into virtual spaces. But as of right now, it happens in place. And that's where our nervous systems tend to most get regulated, where we have that feeling um, that I, I think our senses kind of shift. But that those experiences, you know, used to just kind of be how you lived. <laughs> but now they're going to become premium things people pay for. You know, I see this um, as someone who has gone to and loves Burning Man and festival culture. I think that's a huge part of why it's just exploded because people, you know, myself, um, speaking for myself, like ache for that level of like just being with people, you know, there's something to the experience of like four days into Burning Man where just everywhere you go at all times, there's people. Mm -hmm. there's, just, there's just, there's not really private, you know, you have your tent, but even in your tent, you're hearing people. You're hearing music, you're hearing people walk by, you can feel their energy around you. And for me, something loosens in my nervous system around day four, something just relaxes. Like it, it's just, there's a part of me that's just like, boom, and I'm just here and it's people and I fucking love people. Some of them are assholes, but most of them aren't, <laughs> you know, it's like, but it deeply nourishes me, deeply, deeply nourishes me. And even, you know, for a few years I was going to kind of a more, um, 
youth oriented festival here in California called lightning in a bottle where there's like a, yeah, a lot of young kids and they come and do a lot of drugs and, and whatnot. But I talked to, you know, we would spend some time. We led some like circling in a tent once with it with somebody. And when I would slow down and connect with them, what they were all longing for is some kind of connection. They were like, they're wanting some kind of connection to happen, like with peers, with others, like, and when it slows down and comes, like they're so nourished, but they don't have the words for what they're looking for. So they go to these big lights and these things and, but it's connection. Like there's a deep, deep yearning for it. And I think that's, you know, uh, one of the podcasts I've been listening to has been talking about how with the whole work from home explosion and the impending, you know, commercial real estate crisis that actually it's going to flip, <laughs> could very well flip soon that places like Google, one of their main selling points is, no, actually we have a physical space in a cafeteria and you can come in and you get to be around people you wouldn't necessarily meet and talk about, you know, movies and things. And like, that's going to be something people want. Like, I, I think there's going to be another kind of developmental thing of like, yeah, I can work from home hundred percent of the time, but I actually really love going into office, the office once or twice a week to just be around people and talk and get these other um, things fed that you can't necessarily get fed just working from home. And, you know, the whole isolation that comes from that, you know, this is something I coach a lot of people on too, just the, the way entrepreneurism works these days, you tend to work on your home, uh, on your own, alone at home. And then people are like, it's really hard to write my book when I'm just alone at home all day. It's really hard to get motivated to work out. It's really hard when I haven't left the house in like three days and I have no reason to, you know, in quarantine, I think has just really accelerated that for a lot of people, but that there's this premium, you know, in my mind. And I, I love that you keep bringing it back to the nervous system yearning for us to connect in place, um, in safe and sustaining ways. And we're seeing, newer technologies like circling and authentic relating for how do we deepen that experience even more when we do have it. Um, so it actually becomes something that can, you know, I, I would certainly argue, argue deeply nourish ourselves and each other. Yep. Yeah. I think I, I want to start talking about like what we might recommend in light of all of this and what to really have people pay attention to and notice for themselves. Um, but, you know, just to kind of bridge into that, like, I think all up and down that continuum of like, I was saying earlier, like text versus image or image versus video or anonymous versus like non-anonymous or synchronous versus asynchronous. These are kind of variables that like, they have trade-offs on either side of it. That, that For example, like, even that experience you said about uh, Burning Man where four days in where there's all these people, you, your body kind of relaxes. Like, when I am in a very big city and I hear just like sirens in the distance and traffic and shit, like that kind of buzz, my nervous relaxes. Like some people are like, oh, how can you stand? I'm like, no, like, I don't know what it is. Some kind of primitive strength in numbers thing. I'm like, if there's, mm -hmm. if I'm not getting like murdered or I don't have to like look out for my life, but there's like signs of humans just everywhere, like some part of my brain is just going like, this is safe, right? We're okay. I'm okay. We're okay. And, uh, like if I need something, I can figure it out. Right. Like, and, and I, I think, you know, it, it's, it's a good idea to just take some inventory of like where the, if you're relying too heavily on one kind of side of this polarity, like 
see if you can like if you're if you're spending a ton of time on the anonymous internet like man getting my kicks on the chance just being like shit posting you're kind of like cool maybe you should spend some more time on the non-anonymous internet right like just as a simple example okay if you're like doing a lot of whatever you know facebooking maybe you should do more zoom right like i mean (laughs) simple kind of brain dead things but um but i do think it matters like if it's if it's all asynchronous or if it's all anonymous right like to or to kind of get more of the of of the need met in a more direct way um i think is is totally important and just one other piece that that i think is really I want to emphasize it. And we've already kind of referred to it as like, we, we have this impression, like if we were to go back to Usenet, it was like, there was not huge algorithms. There was just kind of like, I posted and then people would respond and like, okay, this is cool. I have an interaction here. Like, and now we, it sort of seems like the same thing. I post a thing and then people respond, but there are, you know, there's like these multi million dollar corporations that hired thousands of engineers that have are operating millions of processors running huge algorithms they're like like what i even see to begin with or what you see to begin with is already so pre-digested by like implicit knowledge of me that the algorithm has that i probably don't even have of myself that like the just by the time i even get to the interaction with another person there has already been a huge amount of intermediation uh, between me and that other person to get that interaction to happen. And so like the intentionality or like the context setting for an exchange online is not really even you, right? It's <laughs> being done to you, right? And like, and, and I'm, I'm all for Like I love social media. I feel more broadly connected and even reconnected with people from all eras of my life from high school till now. And I'm like, that was kind of cool because that was largely blank for many, many years. But it's not the same as the highest quality connection that I that I need. And if I think that this kind of like sort of like shallow level, but multiplied by thousands or hundreds of people is a substitute for the deep level with a few of the most trusted people in my life. Like it's not right. Like to, to have. And maybe it's like a bell curve and maybe, you know, the human of the future will have a different sort of, I don't know, statistical distribution of depth and <laughs> something than people from the past. Cause I don't think the answer is to go back to a traditionalist society. Like I don't have a final answer here. Right. But like totally. we need to bring back something about authentic connection in our lives. Cause obviously people are like looking for it in places mm-hmm. and like how to, how to solve for that is kind of an interesting like puzzle. Like even the solution, like when we talked about the integral community was all so heady. Right. But then we had this like circling authentic relating. Now we're all feeling our feelings and our hearts and oh, this is cool. This is the part that was missing. But even there, like we, you know, we, the authentic relating community took over the integral center for like 10 years. And I was like a central part of that era. One of the things that I realized was like, even this is disposable right? People come for a weekend, mm-hmm. experience a super deep connection, and then they never see those people again, right? And then like, there's like subtle narcissism, reflect back to me, let me express my, like, and I'm like, because there's no longitudinal, like over time. That's where I get the most excited in terms of the future. And, and 
you know, in the, the, the both and that you were kind of talking about of, right. It's a spectrum and we need pieces of each. And, you know, what my hope would be is the stitching we're getting closer to, I think, which in some sense involves um, bringing the virtual space layer down to a local level, I think is one of the interesting things, right? Uh, seeing apps like, um, what is it, Neighborhood or I, I can't, My Neighbor or whatever, and Citizen is one I've been using a lot in the last couple of months. And it's interesting, like connecting with my neighborhood virtually and kind of feeling an us emerging in that, which is which is really wild and, and then starting to meet people in it. But one area I see this tangibly showing up, which I think is really cool, having been, you know, worked in the, um, the, the proto integral center and workshop culture and all that stuff where yes, what happens is the downside is, or even medicine culture, which I've been really involved in, right? You come, you have this massive state experience and then you go back to life. Yep. And then it's just like all the stuff kicks up and, you know, it's this integration of that deep state experience with structures over time you know, which I think is the real magic. And many of the men's programs I've been involved in the last couple of years, right? This is one of the new models I see emerging of three or four deep intensives in person a year where you go for the depth and to really go deep with each other and get to know each other face-to-face, do that deep work. And then there's this layer in between, which is the virtual connectivity, which kind of keeps those threads alive and keeps evolving them, which I have found to be really amazing. So it's like I go have this big insight and then there's this follow-up uh, layer through the virtual space that's now possible and actually becomes more interesting. I, I, I noticed, you know, with um, the the embodiment men's program I was in the, the last couple of years, there was the magic of like we'd start virtual and then, you know, we'd have our first in-person weekend. And then I would suddenly give a shit about the men. <laughs> then when we were participating online, it was an actual human being who I knew at like a nervous system level that made it much easier to stay engaged with them in that virtual space. That's one of the things I, I get excited about seeing, you know, forming as a, as a way of, you just can't have one or the other. You know, they both have such gifts and when we can do them both and find ways to link them together where our nervous systems are getting fed and we're getting the depth, but then we also have that span and that unique time that allows us to stay connected back when we're, we're kind of in our own worlds, um, so to speak is, is, you know, people are figuring that out, I think. And, you know, that that's just that uh, beautiful, um, both and sentiment of, you know, integral thinking that I love of like, oh, it's going to be so cool. And they both deepen each other actually in a lot of ways, because in the weekend experience, you can go super deep, but then there's not necessarily that follow-up. There's actually not necessarily time to get someone's story and find out a little bit about their context as much, which can totally alter our relationship when someone tells you one little piece of story and you're like, Oh my God, that totally changes my whole experience of you. But you know, in, in like the authentic relating work, that's generally less emphasized for important reasons. Um, so I'm excited. You know, I, I do think I, I I'm I'm curious to see, you know, if there ever will be a post-pandemic, but whatever, you know, society morphs into, is there this like building hunger? for in-personness again and the importance of connection that we'll maybe see, you know, um, 
rear its head on the other side of this that, oh my God, we've all been in Zoom rooms for so long and we just want to have the giant Zion party from the Matrix, you know, like we just want to get down and dirty in physical space with each other. Like I'm imagining that kind of stuff is actually going to be really, really popular at some point in the next couple of years when we can get back there and like get to enjoy the simplicity of just bodies being in space with each other. I mean, arguably, that's already fueling the the race protests in part, and the one that it's was true. that about the like anti quarantine protests. People just mm-hmm. be in person again. We can't live like this. Yeah, yeah. So let me let me point to a few things I think are kind of cool when I look forward, looking forward to. I mean, this is where my futurism sort of hat comes on. Like, well, what does this really end up look looking like? And I, I, well, first, emerging things I would say. Uh, David Brooks, I don't know, the New, the New York Times conservative, you know, he yeah. um, he's been part of this initiative called we called weaving and weaving is trying to basically address like what kind of n- decentralized network of local community groups that kind of give a shit about each other. Not not in the kind of like necessarily deep emotional process work like us, but kind of like something addressing it sort of is maybe halfway that or halfway kind of what uh, friendly societies used to do. Like, can we restore some aspect or dimension of civil society that's been lost? And I think that's a cool initiative. Um, other ones is uh, I'm actually um, kind of helping lead this thing called emotionalconnections.org during the COVID pandemic, which is um, all of these different locations where people are basically volunteering virtual time to offer emotional support to people in need um, yeah. and initiatives. We're just a directory of those initiatives, but there's a lot of them like NYC COVID care is one of them and like different therapists or coaches or counselors are kind of volunteering time and, and finding matchmaking online in a kind of a decentralized ad hoc way of like connecting to people who are, freaked out about COVID, right? Their, their relative has COVID or they have COVID or they are um, working medical services or one of their family members is, that type of thing. Uh, so I think that's places where I see the seed of it starting. I mean, the weaving thing got started a, a couple of years back and was sort of like almost just in time for COVID. And then this these newer initiatives in response to COVID, I think potentially carry the seeds into the future. Um, another... I'm going to rapid just fire through these trends that I'm seeing. Is that cool? Yeah. So another thing is like, you know, the therapy model while good is this weird way where the therapist is kind of a blank. There's not a, they're supposed to like subtract as much of themselves out of the relationship in order to provide a safe space for healing trauma. Like this whole therapeutic paradigm, totally in favor of it when it's necessary, but like it actually sort of misses like the coaching industry sort of arose kind of to, to like replace maybe some of the things that were maybe, you know, if, if, if therapy is more focused on the past then coaching is more focused on the future, therapy is most more focused on like healing a deficiency than coaching is focused on like expanding a capacity or like something like that. And I think that was one answer, but I think out of the coaching and therapy industries, there's this emergent, um, what I'm calling like just relational practice communities, right? I think, Nonviolent communication was an early one. Marshall Rosenberg, I think, studied with Carl Rogers. And it was like he was taking the principles of of human-centered therapy and like saying, like, no, we can learn how to do these for each other, which sort of like helps the need for like <laughs> having therapy later in life go away because you get like screwed up to begin with, right? Because you're you're 
you had a healthy social fabric you're plugged into like early on. So I, I actually kind of see the emergence of these communities or these online circling platforms or relational practices like are kind of coming to fill in a thing. And I think in the future, now this is where I get really kind of into, into it. Like if we're talking about AIs and robots taking over a lot of repetitive tasks or even like cognitive tasks, like what are people going to do for work in the future? Well, in a way, you know, everyone, you know, one trend you can already start to see with YouTube is people will become entertainers. It'll sort of be like the experience economy and all sort of shit, you know, look at my room or look at my workshop or like, I'm going to, you know, do a thing, you know, unbox a thing or something, which is cool. I'm sharing an experience and like, I'm doing it across time and space and I'm feeling connected to a group of my fans. And in a way there's more authenticity to that than let's say like broadcast television, but then there's, or acting, right? Cause those people are not really totally acting. They're kind of being some version of themselves, but then, you know, there's fake authenticity. There's sort of like a limits to that amount of depth. Well, let's say like, I think another part of the economy, that's not just the experiential economy. I mean, all of these are part of the attention economy, right? Like this is, it's like where people are spending their time and attention is really the, the main aspect of exchange. But the relational economy is this kind of, I don't know if anybody has said this yet, but this is what I think of as an emerging thing, which is like the jobs of the future will be like the kinds of things that we really don't, most people will not ever want an AI or a robot to be doing right. Like I don't, I don't care if the AI gets better at reading x-rays than any radiologist, human radiologist. Right. But I don't want to talk to an AI about my x-rays. I want to mm -hmm. talk to a human a person, right? Like, and maybe in a way the whole economy, like instead of being like a, a general practitioner, maybe being a, a, a nurse is sort of more of the thing, like this kind of bedside manner rather mm -hmm. than sort of a sort of an optional or a tangential thing becomes the central thing because the AI diagnosticians are just doing it better than any humans can anyway. Right. And, and these doctors who sort of like run around just checking off charts and you get to see them for like, you know, 10 seconds in a hospital. Why should they, they're just doing what the AI should be doing. Totally. Right? <laughs> And we should have like hundreds of other people that are sort of like spending time with you. Yeah. Right? Like, and you know, these, these careers that are like maybe sort of on the fringes or people don't really, people do them because they feel inspired, but maybe they don't make a lot of money doing them being a facilitator or whatever. Like maybe those are going to be actually the, the careers of the future be, as more and more of the economy gets just automated away, it'll be more and more of the thing that you just want there to be a person. Like I, I want a massage therapist to touch me with their hands, right? Like that kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Who, who, who can intuit things through their body about what my body needs, right? That a, a machine might not be able to do. I think that's a spot on like an emerging uh, relational economy, you know, which I think, matches in a lot of ways the emerging experiential economy right like the yeah. the, uh, the what are they called like the puzzle rooms and the like live theater like certain things that are kind of coming back in a way because you can't just watch them on tv you have to there's like a, an energy to actually being there in the moment and having that experience that those things i do think are going to keep keep um emerging as huge huge new things and you know it's one of the things that has me feel a little bit of um, job security, so to speak of like, well, 
no matter how good computers get, I think people are always going to be struggling with relationships <laughs> and just like being able to help people be in better and healthier relationship. Like that's mm-hmm. not going anywhere anytime soon as, as far as I can tell. So that feels good to be, you know, at the ground level of, of that. But yeah, man, what, this is such a wild, far ranging conversation. There's so many places I can already feel <laughs> continuing this, this thread that is so exciting. Um, you got to you got to wrap up because I got there's a couple of things on organizational life I do want to add if you if you, you got a minute I could probably do let me think but, 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 I could I could do like ten more minutes yeah okay cool so so in organizational life I think there's there's a way it, whatever post industrial revolution we're, I mean we're, we're talking a big historical sweeps like this is given way to the information economy which in some sense has brought forth an industrial model to knowledge work basically like productivity I in my cubicle, but this emergent kind of class of people that you and I know a lot of like, you know, the solopreneurs or like the people who want to like have their online business, you know, a lot of those people sort of get atomized back into individual space. Um, mm-hmm. They know inside somewhere they're like, I don't want to, I don't want to work for somebody. I don't want to be an employee of somebody. Interestingly enough, a lot of those people also are like, I don't want to be the boss of anybody either. So I don't want to grow an organization. So what does the organization of the future look like? Like in, in a way, you can make the argument that employment itself is a kind of residual form of serfdom, right? Mm-hmm. But like you said, like what if this premium thing, like Google has a space with a cafeteria you can interact with people, like what is the construct? Now we're kind of back to social technology. Like are there innovations in the organizational space with how we do equity shareholding of a of a team or how we do decision making and distribute authority like yeah things like cryptocurrency and holacracy um or the co-op movement kind of evolved into the 21st century with these social technologies will start and i'm already seeing this in in several different pockets of like the organization of the future is like there are no bosses and there are no employees but we don't have to just be stuck in being solopreneurs either, right? We can be in a peer network, right? Yeah. Where people are kind of like filling in the roles that they are best suited for. And not only that, the work itself, this kind of goes back to our purpose talk, like is purpose aligned enough such that like, like a lot of employment now is kind of like, well, would you be doing that? Well, I wouldn't be doing this if they weren't paying me. I would be doing something else. But why, right? Like, work-life balance is this weird kind of thing that sort of presupposes that the work part is really not something that you would be doing really unless they were paying you. But if you could like dissolve that barrier, then it's not just the work that's purposeful that you want, but you also want the relationships with the people that you work with to also be meaningful. Now they're not going to be necessarily your best friends or like an intimate partner, but like, that boundary, I think, will dissolve in this workplace of the future because we'll actually bring back something like, I mean, this is this is a little bit like the echo of the hunter-gatherer. Like if there's a, if the second tier, to use the integral model, like recapitulates some of the things from the first tier, this may be one of those things where it's like, you know, there was no work-life balance in a hunter-gatherer tribe. You didn't commute. It was like, Right. There was the kids and there was the, you know, there was the people you were having sex with and the people you were eating with and the people you were hunting with and the people you were gathering with. They were all the same people. Right. Yep. 
I'm not saying the workplace of the future is going to be that sort of like insular, you know, in this in the coming decades. But I do think we might actually see workplaces of the future have this kind of thing where there there's a sense of community that exists. It's more authentic and there's less of that phony management doublespeak. And there's less like the reason why it's all pretend is because all these weird incentives exist. Like, you know, I'm I have my workplace persona because I'm an employee. Right. I go to the HR training because they say that I have to or like all these weird ways that were kind of smoothing over something that is kind of systemic and is, in my opinion, a thing of, of the past. It's the forwarding of an industrial model. You may even say it's of the forwarding of a feudal model that like we don't need to have anymore. And like this is where I am imagining the the socio and emotional well-being kind of come together yeah. in our careers and in our work. So I see that as an emergent thing too. I have never thought of that before. I think that's incredibly uh cogent, like just yeah, that the the false work-life balance thing and how ultimately for that to be dissolved would be the best way to live. Like I know I certainly would love that. Right. And to an extent being kind of more of an entrepreneur has a little bit of that, you know, a lot of my friends are people I sometimes work with or sometimes we create things with, like there's a lot more flex flow around that in, in how we show up for each other. And there's deeper shared values around a lot of what we do, even if we're not doing the exact same thing. I think that's a really exciting territory and then you know group distributed um economics around that start to come online too that you know i think we're just at the you know partly powered maybe by some crypto technologies and just some changing ideas about wealth inequality and stuff you know like right now all the web 2.0 um things are like well airbnb owns airbnb right Right. Instead of like, what if everybody that wanted to participate in Airbnb got to revenue share or Lyft? Like there's no, re you know, I know a couple of people have started to try that kind of thing. And I think that's going to be really exciting when it's like our thing that you know, technologies like holacracy are going to be incredibly important for how do we maintain that thing and grow that thing and, and keep it, you know, cohesive. Um, as a filmmaker, I also know I'm super excited about this because they, I mean, they passed it like three years ago, but they passed the Jobs Act which was basically um, eliminating the red tape around, you know, something like Kickstarter till now means it has to be donation based. So if someone donates to my Kickstarter, it's just a one way thing. But the Jobs Act, um, when they actually write it or fully implement it will mean, oh, my fans can actually um, owners become owners and profit. So when they're tweeting about how much they love my movie or creating fan art, they're actually earning from that. They're actually profiting from the shared world or community we've built around that. And I think that's going to be tremendously exciting as that kind of gets unleashed. And, um, you know, the amazing thing about that is to be someone that can attract that kind of community. You have to have a lot of these skills that we're talking about of actually knowing how to connect and create community and talk about shared meaning and bring people together and then if you can do that, you're going to be able to, I think, spearhead and create these kind of collectives and, and shared um, revenue models that are so different from the, the systems we're in right now. You know, I think about that all the time. Yep. You can get away with being kind of a jerk or a sociopath type of person in the current system, but it will be harder in the future. And that's the kind of future of work that I 
that I want to see. Yeah. And the thing that you were talking about, like the Airbnb and Lyft being co-owned by the people, that's a movement called platform cooperativism. I don't know if you've heard of platform cooperativism, but that is a, it's another emerging social technology that solves for this thing, which is why is this middle person like Amazon and Lyft and Airbnb still extracting out of mm. range for a different category of people, which is the shareholders? Why isn't it like I mean, the co-op movement has existed for 150 more years, but I think the, the future of the cooperative principles, I should say, or the, the essence of what it was, is actually going to be more fully realized in the Internet of the of the future. And it, it will be a lot different and we will kind of have shared purpose, shared values, shared meaning, a sense of community and work together where the economic incentives of that all like are more, they're not going to ever perfectly line up, but they are more lined up like with each other together. And like this is, you know, if I were to share with you kind of like a dream, I don't know if I've ever said this in public, but like one of the places where I was talking with Robert, a friend of both of ours, like where I imagine the integral center could go would be like, well, what if we could create just a worldwide meshwork of all of the authentic relating and circling certified facilitators and any companies that offer trainings in those things, just create like a token, like the authentic coin kind of token. And like, you could have some kind of like threshold of buy-in and that now it sort of starts to become like, a network of cooperatives where it's like, oh, I've, I'm volunteering to help this course go, but I'm earning credits that I can then go spend on another course inside the network. You know what I'm saying? Like this yeah. could be a way rather than all these facilitators all just out there trying to make do kind of all by their lonesome, you know, like it can actually kind of be built up and to kind of, cool. yeah, yeah. That's, that's a big kind of dream that I have for the future and to tie this to the, I'm going off here, like to tie this to the racial justice moment that we're in, and this is a huge topic we're not going to get into, but like one of the talks in criminal justice reform right now is this, the emergence of restorative justice, which has been around for a while. It's just becoming really something a lot of people are paying attention to, but like, this is the resolution of, of social injustice or criminal behavior, whatever you want to call that, like that is more about repairing the relationships. And this is a bigger topic than even restorative justice than we can go into, but like it's different than either retributive or punitive, which you could say are kind of like, you know, traditional is like retributive and modern is sort of punitive disincentive, like restorative should be kind of the, the justice of the future. But what do those require? Those actually require facilitated circles where everyone sits down with an expert facilitator, like the, the aggrieved, right? The victim, the perpetrator, the everyone, and then community members that are connected to those people. And everyone just sits down and goes like, what is required by this unique situation and what did transpire that would restore something? Yeah. And it would either restore their relationship or it would, or it would, resolve whatever need the victim and the perpetrator like needed to kind of resolve so then we can kind of move on and at this point he's like you don't throw just throw people in jail or throw people in prison right or this idea that we're just doing this in order to disincentivize that behavior. like this is ra it's radical but if if what i'm talking about that this 
career of the future is more relational. And then there's more people that are doing things like providing spaces for people to just be real with each other more. And then the workplaces, places where people want to be more real with the people that they're working, we're going to want the justice system to be one where it's, why is it the state that comes in and like charges somebody? Like Mm -hmm. between the people, right? That's the point, right? Like if we can create an infrastructure that would create spaces and this becomes just like a logical extension. Like in a way, the principles of restorative justice are basically the same principles as authentic relating. I don't know if you've studied that, but there's a direct connection there. And I'm like, that's more of like the world that I want to see. Like in the, in all these things kind of come together. Like how do we resolve our grievances? Well, we go do this thing. We convene a circle, we get a facilitator and we work it out. Right. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that. No, that's a great vision. I, I want to be in that world. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's, Let's make, do it. It. make it. Make uh, it. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So much, so much we covered there just around this general idea of community and how human beings, um, you know, I think we would both agree are wired for it to some extent, to a large extent. And that the, the gift of the internet and the virtual spaces that are being created now are awesome but alone, they they have a big gap, and so learning to find a way to fuse these two things together of having healthy in person connection and community and resonance with this whole layer of everything emerging on top of it, I think is going to be um, you know is our work in the world right now that you know I think that's one of the differences between having an argument online and having an argument in person, right? It's just much harder to feel someone's humanity in my experience, to feel their heart online versus even in person, we might be arguing, but I can feel that there's just a human. There's a human on the other side of that who cares deeply about something um, that allows me to be open to them in a different way. That is just so not possible in the online space right now. I think why things can get so nasty versus, um, you know, for me to tie it back to, to, um, just this idea of cities. One of the reasons I love cities is because yeah, there's a lot of crime. There's a lot of dysfunction. There's a lot not working, but to me, that's also inspiring because it kind of mostly works though. Like most people aren't hurting each other every day, even though they have radically different backgrounds and beliefs. And I'm like, that's what gives me hope that we're going to be able to figure something out in the future is when, and it's not just cities that, that have that, but this idea of groups of others finding out ways to cohese and um, exist to each other. And, you know, seeing community, even as a value, it does feel like it's something I'm starting to see come back online. You know, community bike days, like the Civic LA things are really big where they close down streets so people can just bike with each other. Like that's a valuable thing. Um, you know, there's talk of shutting down some more streets to create more pedestrian areas and yep. this idea of plazas and people like being around other people. Yep. You know, it's one of the reasons I think I was certainly swayed and attracted and romanticized by Europe you know, as a, as a kid going over there again, cities built for people where people hang out in areas that exist for no privatization, but just for public use, a garden, a plaza, it's just there to be there. Right. So we can be in it. Um, and it feels like some of that is starting to emerge in terms of, uh, even at the, the kind of more structural design level of the U S and then the shift towards interiors of people, you know, 
at least in the worlds we're in, really wanting connection again and, and, and finding it valuable to um, go into those structures and be connected and feel that experience and then be able to go back out into the world. Yeah. Um, I do have one last thing I just want to throw out there as a, as a super fun film recommendation cool. um, for, for anyone listening. It's one of my all-time favorite directors, this guy named Jacques Tati, who is this French director um, in the 60s and 70s. And his um, he, he has a series of, of films that are kind of about this character, this old Frenchman in a trench coat. But his second one of those is called My Uncle. And it is a perfect, hilarious, wonderful, whimsical there's literally no dialogue. It's hard to describe um, story right about that convergence of kind of traditional public civic city life mm-hmm. uh, in, in that more like town oriented energy, even when cities themselves had like neighborhoods that like it was all just mashed together and the emerging suburban privatization. So it's this wonderful movie about a character moving between those two spaces that is so genius. I mean, it's many decades old at this time, but I can highly recommend it to anyone. Um, my uncle, that is uh, just a perfect, I think, shows the benefits and, and some of the, the loss in each of those worlds and, 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 and what a trade-off we made moving to that more private suburban culture. Yeah. Yeah. And just, just in parting, I want to just encourage people like, you know, find ways of like, moving up the scale like in these different kind of trade-off configurations hopefully we kind of painted a picture of those and like as best as you can see see how what you can do to create authentic connection like i think that authentic connection even just between two people is like the foundational building block of what we're talking about this kind of like social emotional health and well-being and uh you know, if if we are kind of in a civilizational reset or reform or some people say revolution, it's hard to really know when you're in the middle of one of these things, how far it's going to go. But like it, it is the social fabric that is the bedrock of any society, any governance system, any type of organizational that is formally, you know, doing something politically or economically, whatever it is like the the precondition of it are is that kind of like primate level sociality that we all have the capacity for because our genes designed our bodies to do it and we have a natural urge and hunger for like nutrition and if you through listening to this discourse feeling like oh i'm seeing the ways that i'm sort of undernourished or maybe i've been binging on, you know, the junk food equivalent of social connection, but not getting the real hearty, healthy meal. Um, yeah. Like if you need help finding places, like you can reach out to Jason or I, we can point you in directions for that. Find circling authentic relating groups or nonviolent communication groups online. You know, I know that some activism provides some of that, uh, as well. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of places where like, I would say it's stirred up in a way, this kind of grassroots bottom up, like even just awareness that there is this kind of like, you could see it as a mob and see it as scary. And maybe sometimes it is, but like more of it is just like, this is where civilization comes from. It springs up from the 
the populace and the actual lived and experienced relationships between human beings and like fostering that at a, in a healthy way is crucial right now. Like as, as shit's just like falling apart in so many different ways. Like, so encourage, like find it. I second that definitely reach out to us if you need any suggestions or resources and that, yeah, you know, in many, many ways, I, I, I totally believe that, you know, connection is one of the cures for so much of what we're struggling with right now. Um, in that, you know, connection to me is the process of how the other becomes us, you know, kind of grow our, we grow, grow the, we, so to speak and connecting where that person that I thought was different and is different in a lot of ways. I get to know their world. They get to know mine and we get to feel our shared humanity. And once they're shared humanity, you know, you can still have debates. You can still have incredibly deep disagreements, but it's just a whole different way of being in relationship around that, that I think is what we're so, so lacking right now. So definitely taking those steps to, you know, it, they, they talk about, you know, there's the, um, change the world, start with yourself, like, you know, fill your connection tank and, and, and find ways to get nourished in this sense. Cause that is actually starting to connect the world more, right? Every time you weave a new thread with someone that is helping this, this greater social network and fabric we have. Mm -hmm. Awesome. This was great. That was epic. My friend, we'll do it again. Yes. Let's do it again. Special shout out and thanks to Screaming Witness for the amazing intro and outro song. Check them out. <laughs>